My name is M. Costa, and I'm here Zooming along with my co-host, Rob Frawley. Hello. And Noah Guyberson. Hi. Um, and we're here <laughs> for another rollicking episode of Fax Machine, the podcast by and for people who are curious about everything, but especially the things that make them laugh. I'm also very excited to introduce the fourth voice that you hear on today's show, our esteemed guest, Marion Renault. Hi. Hi. So Marion is a freelance science journalist who's published some really insightful and beautifully written pieces in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and various other outlets that are frankly lucky to have her. Um, her work is awesome. Look her up. It's great. Are you listening, outlets? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, thank you. And we're also really lucky to have her on our show. So thank you so much for joining us, Marianne. I am so thrilled to be here in my bedroom closet with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when we were chatting uh, earlier in an earlier Zoom meeting, you mentioned that uh, before studying science journalism in your master's at NYU, uh, you were more broadly a journalism student in undergrad. Um, so I was wondering what motivated your decision to focus on science stories in particular? The, the like really boring reason is that the first full-time job I got was just covering science and the environment kind of randomly. But the more fun <laughs> reason is that <laughs> I, I mean, I love science journalism because it just lets you, you can write about whatever. You know, there's really nothing in the world that somehow can't be explained by a scientist or investigated by research or, you know, it, it, it's sort of a free pass to write about everything and anything. And I, I, I thought that was really exciting and kind of a, a fun way as, as a curious person to really have a, a hall pass to do all kinds of stories. Can I ask, even with all that freedom, do you have a beat? Like, is there a corner of science that you consider yours? Uh, well, I really like writing about weird animals which is which will mm. i think come in handy it'll come in handy today and then you know obviously the last couple of months i've written a lot more about healthcare and, and health um but i i do like writing about ecology and invasion and um I, I i like to think i have a little mini beat on on species that are both invasive and imperiled which is a really interesting Ooh. cross section of, cool. of animals so actually, speaking of that, um, I kind of peeked at your previous clips, uh, and you definitely write about like a wide range of things. Um, but I was wondering, so there's one article that I saw called, What the Heck is a Haboob? And I'm compelled to ask, <laughs> what the heck is a Haboob? <laughs> um, so, and I actually wrote this a couple months ago, so I, you might want to fact check what I have to say, but uh, a Haboob is essentially like a dust storm. Um, usually it's like the, in the front edge of a, of a thunderstorm, there'll be, um, God, I really hope no one who's like a meteorologist is listening to this, but like, you know, it's at the front. Marian, no, nobody's listening to this. <laughs> you know, Don't worry at all. <laughs> storm front. And then like, it will push in, in like a d arid area. Like the storm front will like pick up dust and, and push gotcha. and push it into an area. And it, like it, it can just sort of be, you can be 
sitting on your porch and then like a minute later just be like literally in the middle of a dust storm. So in today's episode, we're exploring a theme of uncharisma. So inventions, organisms, systems, what have you, that due to their unremarkable or unappealing connotations are often overlooked and so go unrecognized for the crucial and sometimes surprising functions they serve um, in keeping our ecosystems and even our lives running smoothly. So we're going to start off by swapping stories, whose subjects, as you'll see, are all more than meets the eye, and then we'll wrap things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. So without further ado, Rob, what have you got for us? So this week I learned all that slithers is not <laughs> cobra. Oh, really? Couldn't uh, land that joke, but I got halfway through it and I liked it. <laughs> oh no. I, thought, I really thought that was going to rhyme with the gold or something. Nope. Yeah, there's like... nothing. Oh, I is that really what it was? Yeah, so And you said one, it so slowly is... to build it up too, but it built to nothing. I was just so enamored with how well the first half fit that I I didn't really mind that there was nowhere to go with it. Maybe they'll be um, so excited well, that they'll just let the second half yeah. just flop and it'll still they'll be forget a hit. about well, you... it when they think back to the first half. Well, oh, I stopped movie. listening after slithers. You know what they say? Uh, you know what they say about Rob? All that dithers is not bold. <laughs> you're burnt. Wow. I think. I, think. Okay. <laughs> I have to look up dithers, but I think you're right. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically. Um, <laughs> to say it like a normal person, there are things <laughs> that are slithering that are not snakes. Um, and so what I learned is that there's a, a clade of vertebrates with no legs that not only isn't a snake, they're not even reptiles. Um, so today we're talking about Sicilians, the amphibious snake imposters. Um, <laughs> That's a great name for a band. Yeah. <laughs> amphibious snake imposters. <laughs> but also, can we get a quick spelling of that just to spell what that might also sound like in terms of yes. a group of people? <laughs> right, yes. And so something that I'm really afraid of is our Italian listenership um, <laughs> and all the things I'm about to say about Sicilians and not Sicilians. <laughs> there we go, yeah. <laughs> but it is spelled C-A-E-C-I-L-I-A-N, Sicilian or Sicilian, but not Sicilian. Yeah. Um, like do they live around Mount Etna? <laughs> Closer to there than here, but no. So okay. they have a really particular range that we're going to talk about. Uh, and the good news is if anyone gets a soundbite of this, of me saying something disparaging about Sicilians, luckily Sicilians are not known for having uh, tempers or holding Legs. grudges. <laughs> 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 but so... Wait, which one are you talking about? <laughs> I'm keeping it up in the air. I don't want anyone to know. I want okay. plausible deniability the whole way. But so speaking about Sicilian amphibians, um, it wasn't that long ago that I even really came to terms with the fact that there are legless lizards that are not snakes. Uh, yeah. Like this is, I think this is a thing that we really like just glide over in elementary school. How many legs does it have? Zero. Does it have bones? It's a snake. <laughs> Otherwise it's a worm. And that's it. That's like kind of like, this is kind of how I organized my young life. And now go to recess I'm hungover. That was basically school. Stop asking questions. <laughs> I'm gonna put on a video. Yeah. <laughs> Pop in a VHS. But Take so... a nap. Sleep it off. <laughs> but so there are animals like glass lizards, which are legless lizards, uh, which evolved to lose their legs from four-legged lizards. 
which to be very clear is different than snakes, which are legless and they evolved from four legged snakes. Um, and so that's something that most of us have never seen. Uh, and the reason I say most of us is because they're essentially evolutionarily gone, except every now and then you'll find like a really interesting sample of a snake that has vestigial nubs, kind of like the polydactyl uh, growths. And so I found an amazing video I'll share with you guys of a king cobra in India that has four like centimeter long legs, um, which is just fascinating. <laughs> more like more like a king tobra. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so sorry. I'm still thinking about vestigial nubs. That's really cute. Yeah, it's a great right? name for a band. <laughs> <laughs> If we don't leave here with five science bands. <laughs> and we don't leave. Yeah. We, exactly. That's when we know it's over. We're locked in. <laughs> oh, I feel like if I saw that, I'd want to give them like a high one. Just like, boop. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's essentially what these scientists did in this YouTube video that I'll share with nice. you. But, but while also dealing with the fact that it's a king cobra. Uh, but take, take all this great information and cast it aside because that's reptile land. And we're not here to talk about reptiles because honestly, reptiles are already kind of the better known and loved um, kind of scaly uh, vertebrates. We're here to talk about amphibians. And so amphibians are kind of dominated in, in the public eye by frogs, toads, salamanders, right? Cute crawly things that live in the water, um, have other kind of webbed features, and they're overall just kind of neat. Um, so think instead of this creature called a Sicilian. Uh, described by New York Times science writer and close personal individual I follow on Twitter, uh, Catherine Wu. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> she calls them, if a worm and a snake had a slimy, scandalous love child, it might look something like a Sicilian. I like how it has to be a scandalous love child. It can't just be like, just like a whatever, normal, wholesome cool love child. <laughs> yeah. I mean, have you seen one? Mm. <laughs> there, some yeah. scandal involved <laughs> but it's so like the, if you animals, a centipede without legs yeah and they so they do range in size kind of tremendously there are ones that are several inches long um the ones that i would say have gotten the most fame thus far can grow three to five feet so they are they're fairly long amphibians so they spend a lot of their time in water, though, as well. So that's what's interesting. So it depends on the, the species. Uh, some species are much more adapted to water. Some are much more adapted to, like, living underground in muddy areas. Um, right. So, yeah, th there are several species that can live for hours underwater. And, like, that's kind of their so, primary habitat. So would you say that those Sicilians are sleeping with the fishes? <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, I think, actually. Yeah, I mean, we're peaking early in fact one with these jokes. <laughs> <laughs> This is the peak. I didn't know. Oh, okay. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> but so these animals are not, like, if you've already Googled them, they're not particularly pretty. Um, and they're simple, worm-like. Um, a lot of them are annular or have rings kind of going down their body that makes them look like just giant earthworms. Um, so you don't really see them. There's not, like, a big exhibit at the zoo. Um, and I, I checked, there are very few zoos that have them. Uh, one was the San Diego zoo. So in 1993, um, the San Diego zoo got Sicilians. I got two adult Sicilians, um, and they bred them and they actually posted on their website, uh, scandalous, fun, <laughs> <laughs> hoping to make another scandalous love child. <laughs> 
Um, but on their website, they put three fun facts, and I'll let you be the judge of how fun these are. One, uh, they are the only amphibians to have tentacles, which is kind of cool. Oh. Yeah, so they are extra olfactory senses between their eyes and their mouth that are not the nose orifice that they already have. So that's kind of cool. The tentacle is on the face? I believe so. Um, I mean, I guess I'm just assuming they have a face. Well, they Ooh. they have an eye and they have a mouth and they're both on one end of the body. And I have a, a, a scientist in Brazil who says the ends of the body are very difficult to tell apart. Um, but so they, not a prominent something... tentacle. Yes, I would say that it's it's a tentacle that's oft overlooked, much like the entire speech or clade of animals. <laughs> Um, their second fun fact from San Diego is, uh, their name comes from the Latin for blind or hidden sacus, uh, which is a good name because they have basically no eyes and they live underground. Um, and I just said they have eyes and then that they basically have no eyes. They seem to have like a, a, a photoreceptor patch. Like a stitchial patch. nub. Yes. Where an eye would be. <laughs> <laughs> they have kind of like an eye region of their body, um, yeah. which like I, uh, depending on where I'm reading, either has no sensitivity or like very limited light sensitivity. So they don't really look. They, they see without sight. Um, and the, this is their third fun fact from the San Diego Zoo. Some species are born with short, blunt teeth used to peel off the outer layer of their mother's thick skin for food. What? Yeah. <laughs> we, were, we were cruising on the fun facts until that yeah. one. They, they, really, they should have fun. stopped while they were ahead. <laughs> they have teeth that are like specific to like flay their parents in a behavior that is called dermatotrophy. But do they do the parents like molt explicitly for that purpose? It does say the outer layer of the mother's thick skin, so that might be that might be just like a special like like that might yeah, be the like, equivalent of like producing milk or like Yeah, I mean you're you're eating something that was you know produced by the mother's body in that sense. Like I mean okay. I we're we're probably not far from having Sicilian farms where we just grow big bloated amphibious snakes and and then ship off like the the finest cuts to like new york steakhouses there's still a lot of 2020 left <laughs> uh, that's true <laughs> you're not wrong if it's, it it's gonna happen it's gonna card. happen now <laughs> the san diego zoo also posted one other fact that was not listed among their fun facts uh which is that even though the zookeepers didn't know much about them they ate 20 worms a week which were they're very impressed by but despite that the zookeepers never figured out how to display them so for the approximately 10 years they had these animals, they were never on display because there was no way to see them because they just lived underground. So they have been kept. There is now a display at the National Zoo in D.C., which has like a very, like basically a very thin display where they kind of go to the soil to get into the water and they can be seen like in the clear water. Um, and there's a few of them visible like most of the time. So the D.C. display seems to have gotten around these technical challenges that San Diego didn't. Um but so one reason that they're not very well known is because they're just super hard to see. Um, and in that same article from the New York Times uh, by Catherine Wu, she talks about how the, the researchers that search for them will be in the mud, like crawling around in, in rainforests around the equator, and they may find one every day or two. Um, so it's like hours of work looking for these animals just to find one. Uh, but so that that's kind of the picture of Sicilian's uh, the amphibians that no one really cared about until July 3rd, 2020. And let me tell you what happened, like, just a few weeks ago. Um, a pretty reasonable article in an online science journal, iScience, 
um, they released a, a preprint about a new and exciting finding. And it basically talked about how uh, a lot of Sicilians that have teeth, they're, they're toothed amphibians, and they actually have venom glands above their teeth. Um, so this was kind of a new finding. And what's interesting is that the arrangement of the venom gland, and actually uh, by breeding them, they found that the lineage of the cells that make the venom gland are the same as the tooth, um, which is how teeth develop in snakes that are venomous snakes. So the same mechanism of a venomous bite is present in venomous snakes and venomous Sicilians, um, but they are incredibly distant lineages. Um, and so this led to like two big, or kind of three big hypotheses. One is um, it is convergent evolution and it's just like the most efficient way. Um, the other is that they are like really longstanding kind of uh, inherited traits from a common reptile amphibian ancestor. Um, but no other amphibians d display this venomous, they very few dis uh, like have venoms of this sort. Um, and none of them have them through teeth. Like you may know that there are frogs that if you touch, they, they produce venoms, but none have this tooth gland venom the same way that these Sicilians do. And so that's why after thousands of Sicilian papers being published, uh, after 150 other Sicilian papers in the year 2020, relative to scale, Sicilians blew up on July 3rd, 2020. <laughs> and I want to I do a quick exercise um, this is just for, for the guests and hosts of Fax Machine, but we'll, we'll try to audio transfer it to the listeners. So using, using my Zoom technology here, uh, I want to show you a quick graphic. So is everyone with me? Everyone see this? Yeah. <clears throat> this is Google Trends, which shows you the use of a word on Google. So this is for the last year. And on the top, you can see um, this is percent of maximum usage. Um, so it just spiked, um, uh, leading up to, or on July 3rd, 2020. Um, and, and it was the most searched ever in, in the history of the term Sicilian because it says 100% of max search. Yes. <laughs> and so I think this is really interesting. Not, it's not surprising that a big paper comes out and it kind of blows up, but for all, like 150 other papers were written, but a lot of science outlets, including the New York Times, National Geographic, they picked up this story and ran with it. Um, the other thing I want to show on this slide, um, which viewers at home can't see, but there's a heat map of the United States that shows the density <laughs> of the term. Do you see the number one state? Can anyone point yeah, that it's out? West Virginia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really, really excited about these venomous amphibians. Um, well, maybe they like aspire to be more like them. Like... Almost Sicilians, <laughs> West Virginia. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tiny eye patch, live sometimes underwater. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Country toads, let take me home. <laughs> <laughs> to the clay I belong. <laughs> 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 Nice. I'm, I'm <laughs> so yeah so basically the the moral of the story is um these animals that are snake-like in many ways are actually like possibly have all the things that snakes have but none of the glory right they have venomous teeth they live underground none of the glory <laughs> i don't know snakes got like there's like whole kids shows about snakes Name five. 
<laughs> I dare you to name five kids name. snake shows right now without Googling. The, the problem is the snake's rarely the good guy, yeah. but that they still have the fame. But there's Sir Hiss from the 1976 Disney Robin Hood. Um, oh. Yeah. Very good. And, okay. children's show. And there's the animated Red Wall series by Brian Jocks um, featuring another animated snake. Main antagonist. Isn't there Jungle uh, Book? Yes. Jungle yep. Book? Yeah. And then there was that that fun quirky snake that was like treat yourself in the Bible really early on. I didn't I didn't finish that story. Um, he was all like, I think it turns out okay. Live your best life, eat anything. It's a buffet. <laughs> and so it's on that note that I'd like to uh, I'd like to kind of just say maybe we could introduce Sicilians earlier in our children's lives. I think that's the solution to this problem. So instead of cats in children's, you know, alphabet letter books, it goes, you know, apple, bird, Sicilian. Right. I think that's it. And is yeah. for nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> for example, he is for blood. <laughs> this week I learned that the blobfish was voted the ugliest animal in the world. And that humans think they look like babies. So, <laughs> this does not raise some flattering <laughs> ideas about what humans think are cute or not at a first glance. Um, but it is basically, uh, in 2012, the blobfish was voted the ugliest animal in the world um, in a like contest run by the Ugly Animal Protection Society. Um, and if you, if you look at a picture of one, it's not hard to see why. Basically, I'm, I'm sure you're all... Are you all familiar with the blobfish? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and th- this is important information that we've done 100% of the people on this podcast know about the blobfish, so it'll come back <laughs> later. But basically, it looks like a half-melted wax effigy of Ted Cruz. Um, and the thing is that... First of all, let me just say, it's a, the the Ugly Animal Protection Society is a really cool group. So basically, they what they do is science comedy about animals that people consider ugly um, and that they feel should get more attention. Um, they, they actually call them aesthetically challenged animals, um, which, which felt very in line with the philosophy of this episode. And they'll do like shows in various cities, and then they'll have the audience vote on like what they think their city's ugly animal mascot should be. Uncare's mascot? Ooh, that's good. That's pretty good. I like it. Basically, the blobfish, I mean, if you've seen it, it looks really kind of like droopy. It's sort of like flattened out. You normally see pictures of them when they're on the surface. And um, it's got this like big, you know, sort of like floopy nose that comes down over its giant mouth. And it's kind of the picture that comes up mainly when you search for it. It has like a little goop coming out of its mouth just to add insult to injury. (laughs) And uh, it's just, I mean, it's not a flattering picture. I mean, but who among us? has not had a flatter, an unflattering picture taken of us that just made its way on the internet and has become one of the top Google searches. <laughs> I mean, I, we all we all know what that's like. What is, it's not, the thing is, it's like when you think about like what's ugly about it and like def- defining like what is ugly is probably like a topic about like, you know, the philosophy of aesthetics that's probably way too big for just this podcast. But I don't think anyone would like disagree that it has what people might call like a face for radio, which is <laughs> perfect for this podcast because we don't need, you know, the visuals. We can just talk about what a interesting, cool animal it is because all animals are really, really interesting and cool. They all fit their niches in really interesting ways. They all, um, you know, have like, 
interesting stories. Like, for example, recently, um, you know about the Nautilus? It's that submarine with a video camera, mm. and they, like, sort of live stream what they find on, like, the ocean floor. They had one particular feed where they found it was like a close relative to the blobfish. I think it's called the blob sculpin. Um, and they, it's like apparently not very common to see them. And, and one of the people who was like the voices for the Nautilus said like, I've never seen one of these before. Um, and then they all just, I mean, this sucks because they all just took turns kind of shitting on it for a little while. <laughs> they were like, this is really, really cool, but it is ugly. It's really ugly. <laughs> but the thing about it, the thing about it makes that not really not fair even if we're just taking at face value that the the blobfish pictures are ugly, is that that's not what they look like. And there's a very good reason that they look like really weird out of water, like not like other fish. And it's because they live incredibly deep. And because they live so deep, the pressure is like, I think it's something like a hundred times a sort of like, you know, standard atmospheric pressure. And so it's just a lot more difficult to live down there. Um, they have foregone what is i think it's known as a swim bladder so it's this sort of like bag of gas inside them that lets them sort of like uh, move up up and down in the water um a lot of fish have them they didn't the problem with that is like when you live in like really high pressure areas in the water uh and maybe you want to like move up or for whatever reason you get like sort of you you go up towards the surface more than you intended to what can happen is the gas bladder will expand because of the reduction in pressure and it will push all your organs out through your mouth hmm. And who among us <laughs> hasn't had one of those nights where you turn up a little too much and all your organs come out through your mouth? So really, the fact that they don't have one of these is actually a quite a cool adaptation. And they also uh, do things like they don't really have very many muscles because they're an ambush predator and they just kind of sit there and they just like wait for various like crustaceans or whatever to sort of float in front of them or crawl in front of them and then they attack. But, ba you know, just to get back to the fact that this isn't what they really look like out of water because the last thing I want to tell you about is that they have this an adaptation to living so deep and it's basically that their sort of like gel-like flesh is just slightly less dense than the water that surrounds it. That means they don't really have to expend a lot of effort to kind of stay at that level. And that uh, allows them to just, you know, kind of float there and wait for their right moment where they can exert the right amount of effort that they need to in order to catch their prey and go back to chilling. Um, the thing is, when you take all of that basically gelatinous body, if you take their sort of like gelatinous structure out of the really deep, really high pressure water, where it itself is letting them sort of like maintain their structure in the absence of some other, um, you know, things like muscles and, you know, other bones, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> and then you bring it up to the surface, it all's just going to, it's just going to kind of drop. And that's what gives the sort of droopy, weird looking quote-unquote ugly face of the blobfish but the thing about this that i find really fascinating and it basically it comes down to the idea of something that is like so ugly that it's cute the fact that the blobfish is voted the ugliest animal in the world is is quite an interesting endearing fact that Cache. almost like takes away Exactly. It almost sort of takes away some of the aspect of like the quote unquote uncharisma. And this is what sort of linked it to the theme to me is the difficulty in defining something like that, because sort of implied in that is, as we mentioned in the beginning, is things that don't get the attention they deserve because they don't like have a lot of what we generally think of as positive qualities. But the blobfish doesn't really have what we consider positive qualities. <laughs> and yet it's extremely well known. <laughs> 
This is not an animal that we know very much about in the wild. But somehow it seems like pretty much every 100% of the people on this podcast have heard of them. Most people, like I knew about this in like elementary school. We could see like pictures of this. Like I feel like everyone's favorite sort of like weird animal they've seen uh, like in some like article online that always have like clickbait titles like check out the ugliest animal in the world or if these are the other fish in the sea i'm deleting hinge or like you know something like that um it's like a miscongeniality effect you know if the bobfish was in a in um a pageant it would never win and it's like well we have a special category for you know you're not you don't look great in a swimsuit and you didn't really do so well on the, the talent portion but you're really, really nice. We really like you. <laughs> yeah. But if, but if the pageant is held in Atlantis, then it's like the star of the show because <laughs> it has its sort of structural integrity. And like, humans would I... look whack at that depth. Yeah. We would look yeah. messed up. Mm-hmm. Although we might look pretty pretty thin at like just 100 <laughs> atmospheres. <laughs> really compressed. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> very very small and very dense it's like are you duck facing like no just the volume of my mouth <laughs> can i say what gives me anxiety about this is perhaps crazy but the idea that what we're doing to the blobfish is the same thing that the french did to quasimodo in the <laughs> making him the king of fools you, you are deformed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And it's like we celebrate him because he's he's the ugliest man in Paris. But then it turns really dark because it was all kind of a facade. And like I just I uh, I'm afraid that we're we, we like might Victor Hugo our narrative on Blobfish someday and really just kind of rue that decision. But here's the thing: if we do that, we are also sacrificing our own commitment to our children. <laughs> and those are the stakes we're talking about. And and what this eventually led to me is like, why is it that people see something like the blobfish and then are like, wow, I need to send this to all my friends. This is great. Right. And it turns out that like people think the blobfish is cute. And like, why is it basically that this single animal that barely ever moves and lives like thousands of feet deep in the ocean and doesn't have any extra show-offy bits like the anglerfish, which I don't think anyone thinks is like especially cute. Why is it that we think those are cute? And it, it turns out that there's quite a lot of like research done on this, this concept in animals from everything with animals that nobody would dispute are cute, like little puppies and kittens, all the way to animals like blobfish and like those little tiny spiders with big eyes. Um, and... <laughs> It turns out that some of those like really important figures that sort of trigger this are having big eyes, large heads, and soft bodies, which are part of a set of features known as baby schema. Um, and baby <laughs> schema, ba- what they do is basically kickstart this innate caregiving response in humans. And I find it fascinating that that is not restricted to human babies, because when humans see puppies and kittens and tiny jumping spiders with the cute little eyes, but also like hairy eight legs and like fangs and shit and blobfish, the same parts of their brains that are basically associated with reward are activated. Um, there are there's even an expression in Japanese called kimokawai, which means ugly cute. It's a concept that like has its own phrase. Um and this is basically just observed in a lot of different things to give this sense of like positive reinforcement to the uh, visual intake of these baby schema containing animals. Um, and I just think that's really, really interesting. Wow. There's also another thing, if you guys are curious, <laughs> thing you, I think a lot of people have heard about just sort of an extension of the, like seeing cute animals thing. It's called cute aggression. 
Oh, Has anyone yes. Ever heard of that? Yeah. I, I've... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's a thing that's, like, so... It, it's a reaction that is so strong, but it's, like, it's so cute, I want to squish it. Yeah. Yes. And, like... That's and it. it's, it's a feeling <laughs> I, I don't know that I have ever had myself. But, really? but like, yeah, like, I've never, like... In, imagine wanting that for a blobfish. <laughs> how satisfying that would be Ooh, it was. <laughs> you just like touch it and it would just like go blue, blue. <laughs> yeah i definitely get that as well um i definitely like see puppy paws and i'm like i want to squish those little toe beans like that's what i want to do i don't know <laughs> i mean yes very precise <laughs> But it's good to let a grown man sit in that. Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) I will sit in any basket of puppies you bring me and I will squish all the domains. But there's actually like really interesting like neuroscience behind that as well. And it has to do with uh, the the sort of the thinking. If you like look look up these papers, they're like, is that you can get these like uh, these like you see something that's so cute. It causes such a powerfully strong, positive um, like feedback that it's that your brain kicks in this sort of like shunt for some of that energy into sort of like nearby um, like brain structures, for example, like aggression that, that subserve aggression. <laughs> and then so you get basically both of these as like an, like a release valve from some of this energy, which might like cause you to, for example, like burst into tears. Um, and so there are, there are a lot of these, uh, a lot of studies about how people can sometimes have um like outward behaviors that are normally associated with negative uh, stimuli uh, in response to what they would consider positive stimuli. And it's, it's sort of known as cute or playful aggression. Okay. Wow. Cause I was about to say, I definitely have, I don't tend towards the aggression, but I do tend towards like the cute tears. Like if I see a kitten just like donut himself on like a little <laughs> corner, I just, I just start crying. I'm just going to say, it seems like a, a dangerous thing. <laughs> Like <laughs> evolution's like, let's make sure that anything that's even remotely round and eyed is something we want to take care of. But if we get or a squish. little too excited, let's crush it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's like, you know, you don't want a baby to be too cute. You... Yeah. <laughs> For it's their like, own safety. You, you could be anywhere from average human baby to blobfish and we will take care of you. But if you're above average human baby, it's, yeah. you know, no guarantees. <laughs> Okay, so I have I have a bunch of examples of uncharisma, and I've organized my notes to be a progression. It's a tasting menu with a progression, um, <laughs> with like the most sort of benevolent, kind of uncharismatic, to what I think is probably the ultimate uncharisma example of uncharisma. Um, so the first one I would like to talk to you guys about is nature's hot dog the moth caterpillar how how many species of butterflies do you guys imagine exist in this world hey hmm. I, I would put it in the thou- name five <laughs> <laughs> i would say, say thousands like reaching ten thousand yeah i'm thinking in the order of like tens of thousands Seventeen thousand butterflies there are 160,000 species of moths. Like these, wow. they are prolific. They're, they, they really are, they are nature's hot dog because they are quite literally packets <laughs> of protein. And there are so many of them. 
in a, in a given moth brood, you know, like 99% in a hundred, in a brood of a hundred moth caterpillars, you can kind of safely assume that 99 of those are going to get eaten and only one will become a moth. So when you, any moth that you have ever seen is a total badass that survived (laughs) a very difficult, very difficult childhood. So anyway, so moth caterpillars. <laughs> yeah, really, they should really call the like when people say like, oh, you're like, a, like you know, someone who's like gone through a metamorphosis and oh. they, like bloomed from a difficult childhood. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they call people like that butterflies, but they really shouldn't. No, you should say that mm-hmm. person's a moth. All of their siblings <laughs> perished, <laughs> and they they made it all the way here. Amazing. They're 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 totally amazing. Um. As you can imagine, uh, birds, they're a really huge food source for birds, um, all kinds of birds across all kinds of habitats. Um, a lot of them are really cool looking. I would suggest anyone who's interested like looks up moth caterpillars. They are crazy looking. Some of them are hairy. Some of them are like clear looking. They're just Ooh. cool guys. And I, I picked moth in particular because I feel like we love and care about butterflies. Butterflies are probably one of the more charismatic animals, but they're, you know, they're, they're brothers and sisters. The moths um, are much more plentiful. And also they, they're cryptic, sort of like the Sicilians, the Sicilians, <laughs> much like the Sicilians. They're very cryptic during the day. They're essentially hiding. A lot of them are nocturnal. Some of them are, if I'm getting this right, crepuscular, which I believe yeah. means Twi- that they're, twilight. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I just, I think they're a really sort of benign example of a, a, a creature that really makes the world go round. So I'll say too, I actually, in looking these up, was reminded my first research experience ever was studying moth caterpillars <laughs> in undergrad. Oh, yes. Cool. Uh, the species called Manduca sexta or the tobacco hornworm. And if you mm. look them up, they're like these really Ooh, like tobacco hornworms band name. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my undergrad advisor would love that. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, they're pretty, they're kind of fun guys to work with. They're just like really chunky and bright green. Um, If you toss them in uh, on ice, they would kind of like get like knocked out and just go numb. And then you kind of poke them and they wouldn't bite you. It was, yeah, they're cool. (laughs) Do they bite? They they get a little feisty, but also like well, some of them can shoot research them up. being what it was, they weren't they weren't the kindest of them, so I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah. One other thing that I just remembered about them that was really nuts. So their hemolymph would oxidize really quickly and turn black. Oh. So whenever we would dissect them, like they would just go from like bright green to like black extremely quickly quickly it was like the most metal thing ever the tobacco hornworms are metal that's what they're (laughs) yeah (laughs) so metal (laughs) we shoot venom from our eyes i don't know if they do that but probably i think so or at least maybe i just got lucky (laughs) and never encountered that um okay so that was one the next one that i would love to talk to you guys about which i already have in previous conversations is muscles Um, muscles are amazing. Muscles are also like secretly very hardcore. Um, I'm just going to like rattle off some muscle facts. Although I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to limit my, my knowledge is really limited to freshwater muscels. Um, marine muscels, (laughs) the kind that you would eat. It is. I don't know. I I don't know what parts are different or the same, but I have a couple, I'm going to do sort of like the San Diego zoo, some like cool facts. One. Mussels have a, let me think about how to phrase this. 
Muscle babies are parasites. All babies are parasites. <laughs> <laughs> um, muscles' hearts are wrapped around their butts. Every time their heart beats, do they poop a little bit? Well, they're like constantly pooping because they're just always filtering. <laughs> um, I think a, a fun fact about muscles that is like not exactly about muscle biology, but is a fun sort of historical fact about muscles. The U.S. went through this really crazy period of being completely obsessed with like muscle pearl buttons in sort of near the the 19th century um into the early 20th century i always have to think if i'm doing that math right um right. and anyways there was this man whose name was johan beppel this man's name was johan beppel he was the father of the u.s muscle shell button industry and in 1912 he died because he stepped on a muscle and cut his foot and the species of the muscle that gave him the in- wound that got infected and killed him was called a heel splitter. Well. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that wow. crazy? That wow. is amazing. I'm, that's got to be <laughs> like a Greek name? tragedy or the something. The sense <laughs> of irony that these creatures have. They are literary. Um, <laughs> I just literary. love them. Awesome. I love that. They I are. love that as an expression. They are um their names are really fun you've got fine lined pocketbook you've got the downy rainbow the downy rainbow this is just a whole bunch of band names what it is. <laughs> fragile paper shell okay elephant ear monkey nice. face heel splitter <laughs> which we talked about fuzzy pig yeah. toe fuzzy pig toe oh! <laughs> This is and just the, like I feel like some cute aggression for that Mag- last one. <laughs> the magnum opus, the orange foot pimple back. <laughs> Whoa. Give it up. Oh, man. Holy damn. They can be as small as a quarter. They can be as big as a frisbee. Their shells can be as thin Whoa. as a dime or as thick as a finger. I think it's worth acknowledging that muscles, in particular to humans, render really important services. Um, there's this really great book for anyone who is, um, if, if this conversation inspires anyone to learn about freshwater mussels, there's this veterinarian, Abby, I think her last name is pronounced Gasto Landis. Um, she wrote this book in 2017. It's called Immersion. It's a, a fabulous read. It's so good. And in it, she describes a lot of the different things that mussels do. And in, in that, she mentions, you know, most of the water that are bound for our reservoirs and our faucets have probably passed through the interior of a freshwater mussel because they are anchors of freshwater systems and rivers. And because in particular in North America, there are so many of them and um, they have historically ha- been plentiful. Uh, we have, we owe a lot to them, even if we never really know it. They, they filter a, a lot of gunk out of our water. Um, next. Can, can I, I'm sorry. I want to just really quickly, I wanted to say also on muscles, Emily, do you remember Emily and I were at a restaurant one time with like a big group of people and the scientists that we are, we there was like a seafood dish i'm gonna i'm wondering at what point emily's gonna remember this or not but we basically like all them when they're cooked they like open up and then they're sort of attached more to one side of the shell than the other and emily and i spent like 45 minutes trying to figure out like 
if there was any like <laughs> statistical difference in like with whether the top shell or the bottom shell was still yep. anchored to like the muscle that closes the shell because it's like it main maintains like attached to one side and we were like oh maybe there's some like fascinating asymmetry <laughs> in this and everyone else is just like staring at us like <laughs> trying every, like, to eat we're, like, we, 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 we're, like, trying to have we're, dinner like, dissecting <laughs> dissecting our telling okay it was on the left here on the right in this mm, one on the left in this one right. on the yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> We had a pen on a napkin with like columns. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> and then it was. I think this was before yeah. a caveat show. <laughs> it was really disappointing when it ended up being 50 50. We were just like, damn it. Science, though. There was, you know? Yeah. Yeah, we got to publish that negative data. Yeah. yeah. You have to. It's not flashy, but. Not enough of that happens, mm. you know? The world deserves to know. Gotta put it out there. Gotta have to. All right, so that's on muscles. Yeah. I believe. <laughs> All right. So we're moving up in my scale, my totally arbitrary scale of like what people sort of like to like what people definitely don't like. Next up is a little bit different. It's a habitat. Let's hear it for the swamp. We talk about swamps. Ooh, swamps. Mm. Swamps. Swamps. Um, And I, I think that there is in particular one swamp in the U.S. that does a really good job of capturing like uncharisma. And I do want to say that a lot of what I learned about Ohio's Great Black Swamp um, was from a really fabulous um, Undark piece that I did not write um, that is written by, I believe, um, a journalist named Sharon Levy. So shout out to Sharon. Um, This piece was really great. Um, And essentially the gist of her piece is that when the first Europeans uh, moved to Ohio, they encountered what they called the Great Black Swamp. So 1781 missionary describes it as deep swamps and troublesome marshes horses at every step wading in the marshes up to their knees. Um, it was land not worth a farthing. Um, you know, people really did not like the state of Ohio because it was almost, it was covered in swamps. There was a lot of disease like malaria that would, that people would get from the mosquitoes that lived there. It was like gross. It was wet. You couldn't really farm. Like the people who encountered the great black swamp really did not like it. And they have there is still this remaining culture in Ohio and in particular um, among farmers that swamps are just, you know, they're not useful, productive use of land because now of course the state has a lot of agriculture and is primarily agricultural in, in, in a bunch of regions. So, you know, swamps are considered menace, sort of like a menacing kind of figure or they're considered a menacing kind of environment um, that are in particular not very friendly to human needs um, and to, to human desires. But of course, swamps are a really incredible kind of habitat. They are nature's kidneys. They absorb water really, really well. They can really help prevent flooding. Um, and they're, they're home to a lot of really incredible creatures. A lot of carnivorous plants do well in swamps um, because, because there's not that much, the water is so clear because of how purified it is that carnivorous plants thrive there because they can just they survive off of the the protein that they get from insects and they don't have to depend on like algae or other kinds of nutrients um and what's interesting about ohio is that the state has a really big um, toxic algae problem in the summers in lake erie and one of the proposed solutions is to revert some of the farmland you know certain portions of it back to swamps to to help with some of the like yeah the the ground filtration power of swamps and use that to help with the the toxic algae problems um that that come from runoff from farms and and end up creating these really massive toxic blooms um in lake erie 
Um, so that's swamps. All right. So we're we're here. We're four out of five. We're almost there. This one, I think, it, like we, there's a really big gap between swamp and this one because um, I think that very few people like this one. Um, cockroaches. I'm gonna talk cockroaches. Um, mm. Yeah. Who Rob does? You like cockroaches? Rob. Rob has had cockroaches on this podcast in a way that would be difficult to explain. I'll, but I'll let him. <laughs> I yeah, I have somewhere between thirteen and eighty cockroaches in in a container over there. Dead, right? Um, not, of no, his own volition. No, quite quite alive. And and not uh, not in his fridge yeah. by container. He doesn't mean that or like his garbage can. He means like in a special cage <laughs> with like special little rocks for them to hide I, under. And I mean like a yeah. a Petco cage. <laughs> and, and we did a live show that was like video live streamed, and we basically finished the show, and then the whole audience stuck around to just watch Rob like poke his cockroaches for like twenty minutes. <laughs> And, and I think we fed a oh, baby to a. We didn't feed a, a baby mantis. cockroach yeah. to a praying mantis. We fed a we fed a fruit oh, okay. fly to a praying mantis. Oh, that's very different. <laughs> oh, yeah. right, because the praying mantis was a baby. Yeah, I've done oh, both. Okay. But <laughs> okay, so I have a, a friendly audience here. Yeah. Yeah. We'll bring I mean, bring them over, one. and then you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we could get eighty fans. So really I, I think right off the top, we have to put out that at least my reporting suggests that there has never been a, a clear documented pathway where a cockroach has caused a disease or an outbreak. So we have this like association that they're like really gross, that they live in pipes, sewage and are icky, but that might that might be an undeserved reputation. That might be more like association that then you can actually get sick. Cockroaches have been known to like produce allergens and give people asthma. So that's like a real thing, a real like negative for cockroaches, but I just wanted to dispel the sort of overarching reputation that they have as being, you know, disgusting disease carriers, pathogens. Um, cockroaches, if you can open your heart a little bit, I think that they're, they're, they, they have some, some amazing qualities. Um, uh, where to start? Okay, so one kind of cool thing about cockroaches is that they have been around as kind of famously for 300 million years, they're very old and they are very good at survival. Um, they tend to inhabit sort of hazardous, unsanitary places um, that might have a lot of pathogens and they're able to survive kind of being steeped in pathogens all the time um, with a really kind of amazing um, de defense mechanism in which they produce these um, when they when they're when they detect potentially harmful microbes, their bodies produce proteins, antimicrobial proteins. And researchers are now trying to figure out if they can um, uh, sequence and reproduce some of these to help um, develop products that might be used in a clinical setting to um, you know to to fight like um, what are they called? Um, oh, like super, like super bugs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah super oh, bugs. Yeah. Cool. yeah, so like trying to harness. It's ironic. <laughs> super bugs yes. versus super bugs. <laughs> um, mm. Engineers are really interested in cockroach movement because a lot of it is really amazing. Um, cockroaches can run like the equivalent. They can run fifty times their body length per second, which would be like us us running two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, but we so here's hmm. <laughs> is that body length in like height? 
Because that's the thing I'm always confused about. I never know how that those numbers because we don't run in body lengths. We run in like the shadow of our, you know, the vertical projection of our, you know, width onto the ground. That's true. So it's yeah. like what what is our length when we're running? And that cuz that does make a huge difference. Okay. Imagine it's a human scuttling. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> on no their thanks. hands and, and feet. No thanks. <laughs> 200 miles an hour horse gallop. Wow. That's even more impressive than what you'd said earlier. I think you're right. I think that's a good point, though. Because, like, human height is not, I mean, the, it's not the same dimension that we run in. But if you flip it and then say it's the cockroach's height and not its length, then that's way less impressive, also. About their height. They can be flattened in a way that's really interesting to robots. Or to, not to robots. They can be flattened. <laughs> robots are too advanced. They can be interested by cockroach. I'm tired. Robots go home in their robot magazines. Um, oh, did you no, they it? can be flattened to the height of two pennies, which I think is pretty cool. It's pretty flat compared to like what they normally look like. And they can withstand... Um, yeah forces that are about equivalent to 900 times their body weight. So they move wow. fast. That makes, it makes wow. ants look like chumps. Totally. <laughs> the number is like 500, yeah. right? That's what everyone says. And nine, I have nine, oh, anyway. I have 900 <laughs> times in front of me, which I think is, yeah, for roaches, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And it's, and it, and it does make a lot of sense, right? You know, um, if you want to like create a robot that can go through rubble during an, after an earthquake, to rescue people, yeah. you would want it to be good at like potentially getting crushed or fitting through really small places, like deforming itself to yeah yeah. So it's inspirational, you know. There are engineers who really look at the cockroach and go, "I want to do that." I have a fifth. Okay. Maggots. Without maggots. Without maggots. We, we were all we were all afraid it was going to come to this. <laughs> I think I think I think I could make a pretty good case for like why maggots are the the most uncharismatic, because humans have such a deep association between maggots and death and decomposition and for you know a person who is alive the idea of like these squishy wormy things appearing on your body <laughs> as soon as you die is like it's revolting it's really disgusting and it's scary it's freaky and it's scary um but without maggots for exactly this reason our planet would be covered with poop be covered with mold <laughs> and it would be covered with dead stuff they oh, make no. they make life livable really i really do think that they're cool <laughs> i guess it's worth it <laughs> i think it is i think it is you know like we have this evolutionary connection between them and death but also we should we should in like an uncharisma world see that actually they they have this connection with with life and with like i just i just had the Full on shit, like shivers thinking about like maggots. I like, I know that's gotta be like so deeply ingrained in our psyche. Cause like, I was like, I was trying to be like, oh, I literally just said like, that's worth it. They're good. And then I thought about one. I actually, you know, honestly, what I, I swear to God, what I was thinking about was, would you rather have a, a, like a dog poop sitting next to you or a single maggot? And I thought about the dog poop and then I thought about the single maggot and I had like a full body like shiver. And I, I need to work through that, basically. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to guide you through it. So I think the first thing okay. that we can appreciate about maggots is that they also, um, sort of similar to cockroaches and similar to leeches, which I didn't include here, but leeches in this way too, have this really particular place in the history of medicine. Um, you know, 
maggot therapy has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um, because because of their ability to eat decomposing flesh, they debride wounds. They have debride wounds. Um, it, legend has it that in the 13th century, Genghis Khan traveled with a wagon of maggots for his soldiers if they were injured in battle. Um, you know, Napoleonic, U.S. Civil War, even the First World Wars, um, medical, military medics would use maggots to debride wounds um, and stave off infections because you know it, it, it would be better to have a it, it's it's such a, an efficient way to have a perfectly clean wound um without needing to sterilize equipment it's what they do they're fast apparently like it doesn't really it's not pain it's not more painful to have a maggot on your wound than it is yeah 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 um i did find this really weird factoid that in victorian england and i only saw one source for this so maybe this is just like made up but Victorian England, um, sickly young. You can say apparently. Apparently. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, apparently, in Victorian England, um, sickly women were sometimes sent to magatoriums because of the healing, oh he healing fumes. That's the most Victorian thing I've ever heard. The healing fumes. Hysterical women. Yes. Oh! <laughs> oh my god. You said healing fumes? So, like, the idea was that. So, not even. Just being yes. in the maggot's presence <laughs> would heal them. <laughs> oh my god, what is that? <laughs> it's, I thought it was going to be like related. For, it's like, oh well, for man, real? let the maggots crack. If I can plug, if anyone out there listening to this knows anything more than what I've just said about maggotoriums, I need you to email me because I would love to know more. <laughs> this is all I know. Oh, I'm, um, never not, I'm never not going to be thinking about <laughs> Red. <laughs> um, two thousand four, the FDA uh, for the first time approved a living creature as a medical device, and it was a maggot. Leeches are also considered medical oh. devices. Mm. Um, they have to be like raised in this really particular way. I actually, I've talked to the guy who got the first license to sell to raise and sell medicinal maggots in the U.S. and He's a fabulous guy. I really like him a lot. Um, he they feed the larvae beef liver, and then the adult flies. Um, they feed them uh, strawberry protein powder, <laughs> which I think is so cute. <laughs> Just... He has a bulk discount. That's really interesting. That's how much. Well, he's trying because he's trying to bulk up. Because he has he he produces a half million fly eggs a week. Wow! Oh wow. my gosh. It's, what is that like? Oh just like one God. fly on a good day? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. No, he has. I mean, he has like this whole right, like this whole enterprise. But, um, anyways, a, a sort of on charisma related tangent is that even though they're medical, In, inter interflies, interflies, um, even though they, they <laughs> it's okay. I feel like I just need to roll with it. Um, even though they are like FDA approved medical devices and even though we know a lot um, about maggot therapy and, and what it can be used for, a lot of doctors would rather just amputate than deal with maggots. It's really not a, an accepted part of modern medicine. Um, uh, so there is sort of that the stigma that they carry really does in the medical sense, modern medicine at least, um, outweigh the potential benefits. Um, so that's one kind of maggot. Also, interestingly, you know, like the kind of maggot that would feed on human flesh is of, of one very specific species. I think it's the blue bottle fly. But like you couldn't just take any fly larvae and, and you know, 
Um, and what really got me into maggots was this idea. <laughs> I was in a, what really got me into maggots? Well, I was in a pitch. That's... I was in a pitch meeting once, and we were talking about we were talking about maggots, and someone was describing this research that that people do sometimes, where they'll put out a carcass and then they'll sort of like watch it decompose and you know look at what what appears. And part of um, this reporter's pitch was she described how it was like a, a, a like a river of maggots and. There was just something about that that just like it doesn't it it still it's hard for me to re- understand. It doesn't make sense. How how could you have a plot of land, and if there was nothing on it, there would be like not that many maggots or like maybe like no maggots. But then you put a piece of meat there, or you put a decomposing carcass, and there's a river of maggots that shows up. Like how I just it, so I mean it, it, well I mean fly yeah. they can fly. <laughs> That's how right. But like, like a river. Or are they laying in wait? for it yeah i just think that there's something really fascinating about like if your whole reproductive process depends on just waiting for something dead to appear and then like (laughs) as many as many eggs as possible as many babies as possible i mean it's really it's a really smart way but i just think it's amazing that they can just like appear they can just like so in in such great quantities i mean and that's about to say that's definitely why like spontaneous generation was such a theory like because like how else do you explain it like they're literally converting the the flesh into and actually one of the critical what i'm saying no i I just want to point out that if this was the 16th century based on like just how i feel about maggots i would be i would totally be like this this (laughs) in the camp yeah (laughs) you would you would write us you would definitely have written a sonnet about it if this was the end of the 16th century That phenomenon is so linked, like was so linked to that theory at the time that actually like one of the critical experiments that kind of worked towards disproving it involved like having a hunk of meat, covering it and then versus uncovering it and seeing if the maggots appeared. <laughs> and they're like, oh, if you cover the meat, the maggots don't just spontaneously show up. There might be a hole in this theory. <laughs> um, I have some really quick, you know, even more maggot facts. Um, they live, we think of them as living on like dead. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, now that's music. Even more <laughs> maggot facts. Even more. <laughs> they can live in camel nostrils. Whoa! <laughs> they live in pet- they can live in petroleum pits. Whoa! They can survive in spider abdomens. They live on lake. In the they live on all... lake. They live on lake bottoms. Whoa! Wow! There are... after petroleum pits, camel noses, and spider abdomens. Lake bottoms is pretty front <laughs> of the mill. Like. The bottom <laughs> of the lake. Oh, the very bottom of the lake. Okay. Uh, right. Right now, there I'm are super curious. 300 <laughs> trillion maggots in North America. I think that's a lot. Just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Every, every one of us has Fly a mothers can maggots. smell decomposition from more than half a mile away, which when you think about a fly, like that's pretty far away, um, and arrive in minutes. In some species, the mom fly will literally rip off her wings in order to bury her maggots in the ground Whoa. to deliver them to a dead whatever. Um, researchers have watched why yeah because like for example imagine it like so this is part of what was like fucking oops sorry this is part of what was messing so part of what like really (laughs) fucked me up so like and again it's because it this is the part of my personality that in like the 16th century i would have been like of course mice come from corn (laughs) that is the majesty of nature (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the unexplainable mystery of life. 
the sort of big picture again i'm gonna the big picture thing with yeah. maggots is we have i think we should appreciate that when all of this ends no matter what when humans no longer exist decomposers and in particular decomposers like maggots that feast on you know dead flesh because not all maggots do some feed on other stuff you know they're going to be one of the last sort of witnesses of this planet they're really going to be one of the last things to go um because they gotta you know they'll be around to consume all the other dead stuff uh so in a world where i feel like we're always talking about extinction and species that are disappearing they're sort of like you know that they're going to be fine the more extinction the better for them they're going to be around way longer than us they have to they tell, tell our, our story. story. Like like in Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> I started the first private orphanage for maggots in New York City. <laughs> Maggotorium. There you go. Oh, so our theme of kind of sort of innocuous things or seemingly innocuous things occupying unexpectedly important niches uh, reminded me of a hashtag that went a little viral on Twitter back in 2018. Um, and by a little, I mean it went viral mostly among science Twitter, which, you know, nice place to be. Shout out to science Twitter. Um, but it did catch the attention of a few news outlets at the time. Um, a rare achievement, I should say, for anything that happens on science Twitter. But this totally deserved it. So I'm talking about the hashtag, uh, hashtag reviews for science. And basically, it was used in tweets that accompanied screenshots of Amazon reviews, just for various products. Um, but the reviews were not for the product's intended uses, but rather for their very unusual uses and unexpected uses as tools in scientific research. So each question of my quiz is going to feature an Amazon review of a product. Um, for example, a digital thermometer, as well as the research task that the product is weirdly and specifically well-suited to. Like, in quotes from a review, fitting neatly inside a lizard's cloaca. Um, so, <laughs> yes. Neatly. Scandalous. So I'll give you guys the review, and uh, you have to guess what the product is. Sound good? All right. Sounds good. All right. <laughs> Am I going to be at a disadvantage because I'm not a lab? No. Uh, I don't... Uh, 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 okay. If anything, I think you Because I'm not a lab have... person? <laughs> no, no. If anything, I think you'll have an advantage because, well... Slight spoiler. Most of we're these we're too close to the problem. <laughs> we're, we're too close. <laughs> exactly. We'll hyperanalyze. Um, but also, most of these are used by field biologists and people doing field work, which none of us do. But uh, in the awesome array of stories that you've covered, I think you might be closer to the sources than we are. So we'll see. You want to find right. out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Question one: What kitchen tool? usually used to prepare the second most consumed beverage in the world, after water, is also useful for zoology experiments involving ants or similar social species. So that last bit from useful onwards is in quotes from the Amazon review. I wonder if it's a coffee maker and then you put coffee in it and then the ants build an ant farm in the coffee grounds. <laughs> is, it a, is it a coffee filter? Close, it's a tea strainer. So you were okay. like, you were right with it being. Yeah, it was like the coffee, coffee tea the same idea. equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But yeah, so this was from a review that actually the one that started the hashtag. Um, and it was posted by sports writer and avid Amazon reviewer John Birch on behalf of his son, a zoologist researching ant behavior, uh, who also happened to share his dad's Prime account. <laughs> um, so as explained in the review, 
basically, ants from one colony were inside the strainers, which were then placed in another colony. And the holes were small enough to prevent the ants from getting in or out, but large enough to provoke a response between the two groups of ants. Mm. So... There you go. Hey, what the fuck is that? They said. <laughs> <laughs> and why is it filled Response with ants? Response <laughs> achieved. Yeah. That yes. other species over there is making me antsy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so tea strainers good for ant provocation, or if you get if you forget to empty it first, an especially formidable uh. cup of tea. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I'm not proud of that one. Okay, question two. What beauty product, which became available in different colors in the 1920s um, when a new formula was developed from car paint, is also great at sealing cover slips onto microscope slides and killing botfly pupae that have crawled under your skin? I think I know it. Ooh, I think so too, but the second part is a surprise to me. Yeah. Well, I, I assume that part's to like keep air from getting to them or something. Exactly. Uh, it's this nail polish. Yep. Yes. I use this daily on my slides. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, my to, like, first... seal in the cell juices. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Whoa, this is yeah. all new to me. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember actually in my first lab rotation, like, in grad school, too, like, one of the postdocs, like, asked someone, like, a tech to run out for nail polish, and they came back with, like, nail polish with glitter, and they were like, no, it needs to be totally clear. <laughs> I was like, what's going on over there? It's like, if you don't want it, I'll take it. It's cute. Like, it's fine. <laughs> Um, but yes, yeah, so nail polish uh, was given five stars by conservation scientist Dr. Aaron Jacob, who wrote, must have in any tropical rainforest first aid kit. Apply topically over entrance to botfly pupae uh, until the maggot dies, and then extract. And colored polish helps track infestation over the course of a field season. Also festive. Huh. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> interesting. Question three. What product, first patented by Johnson & Johnson in 1898, uh, and at the time used the same material as medical stitches, is also useful as a lizard lasso? Is it floss? Yes! Oh, great. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so I was actually, in looking into the history of dental floss, which I don't often do. Um, Very surprised that it actually took that long for it to come around. Um, But it was only invented in 1819 and then only became commercially available at the end of the 19th century. So anywho, uh, this one was from Dr. Sarah Pierce, Ireland officer of the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland, which I have to say just sounds like the most pleasant job imaginable. But yeah, she described that uh, floss works great as a noose to collect small lizards, pretty durable, but can snag an undergrowth, no comment from lizards on the mint flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Question four. What decoration, which first appeared on a Christmas tree in New York City in 1882, apparently can also be used in the lab to get mosquitoes in the mood? Popcorn? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, it's not it's popcorn. No, but that would be a, I, that would I be just, a cooler wait, answer. <laughs> I just don't know if the appositive for popcorn is comma. A decoration first used on Christmas trees. <laughs> like the popcorn strings. Oh, no, the strings, yeah. yeah. That's the, the thing, garlands, yeah, that's yeah. But, like, that's maybe um, second. I was like, what's this? the most primitive <laughs> Christmas tree decoration? <laughs> yeah, Christmas popcorn. Tree. That smells candles. funny. Candles. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think uh, 1882, what was a hot new the thing? The incandescent lights. So, like, are we oh. Christmas, like, a string of Christmas lights? Yes. Wow. Exactly. So uh, this review is from Erin Ross, a scientist turned science journalist, uh, and she wrote, 
Um, we couldn't get Triceratus mosquitoes to mate in the lab, but then we hung these mood lights and no more forced mating. Question five. Uh, a must-have if you're a Rancho Carnetoro or an East Compton Clover. What also makes, in quotes, an excellent artificial spawning substrate for spotted gars? So I'm, are those soccer teams? Are those LA-based minor league soccer teams? So the first two are two cheerleading teams from uh, the oh. classic Bring It On. Oh my gosh, these Compton Clovers. <laughs> oh. Ice, ice, ice. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> okay. So then we're talking pom-poms? Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Wow. A cheerleading pom-pom. Um, That's though, so interesting. I have to say, I think this story is probably more appropriate for a podcast called Gar Talk, but uh, this <laughs> was another five-star review. that show. <laughs> yeah, yes. Fax spin Machine off. spinoff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this was from aquatic ecologist Dr. Solomon David, and he notes the pom poms simulate vegetation. Um, and actually, the ones in the attached attach pictures were bright green, so they kind of did look a bit, you know, mm. leafy, seaweedy. Um, and they make adhesive egg collection easier. Question six: What kitchen tool? typically used to prepare a food item advertised in a 2019 McDonald's campaign that caught heat for riffing on the name of a tragic event during the Troubles. So the tool is named, is prepares this food. I'm realizing this question is very circuitous. Um, but the tool is also instrumental to dung beetle care. Exactly. Oh, was this like Bloody Sunday? Yes. Okay. So Was it called a Bloody Sunday? <laughs> It was, was this it was like, like friendly? Bloody Mary. Mary, but <laughs> yeah. So then the tool to serve a, a Sunday, uh, a a scoop, spoon, an ice cream scoop. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. What a trip. <laughs> oh man. I I realized as I was reading it, I'm just like in my mind, I just had a very slow narrative of like, no, <laughs> this, is, this is too much. We've gone too deep. Um, but yeah, so basically this was a scandal that happened, I guess, last year. Um, McDonald's Portugal promoted a Sunday for Halloween uh, with advertising that dubbed it Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is a little oh, no. tone deaf. Um, yeah. Wow. Yes. Um, but so going back to the dung beetles, because, you know, got to do that. They're fun. Um, so this is from ecology professor uh, Dr. Owen Lewis, and he said that ice cream scoops are ideal for dispensing standardized volumes and shapes of cattle dung. For trapping dung beetles. Huh. So, new kind of pooper scooper. <laughs> I feel like this answered the question that no one asked of how many Wikipedia links is it from Bloody Sunday in Ireland to dung beetles? Sounds <laughs> <laughs> like two ice cream scoopers. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Way less than you think. <laughs> question seven Per an Amazon review, what device can be used in lieu of a tuning fork to lure spiders out onto their webs? Um, and for a hint on Amazon, uh, it's called, well, at least the listing that the person cited, um, called it a body massager. Okay, well. Is it one of these things? Wanna... Oh, is the head, head scratcher? scratcher? I absolutely love those things. Wait, I can't believe <laughs> no. I know it, but I just like, I don't want to say it. <laughs> Just because, because now I feel like I, Emily knows I, I know it, and, so, and you two are on the just, very head scratchery. Really, which, really enjoying this. I, I, I just before I take a guess of what I think Noah knows, I want to say I would I would forego all human contact for the rest of my life if I owned one of those things because they're, it's the best feeling. 
Oh, yeah. But, well... No, the problem is now <laughs> I get my hair caught up in it. It makes little knots. My hair's long enough now that it's like... <laughs> Anyway, it's a vibrator. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's so. Yes. <laughs> um, but also electric toothbrushes barely work too. Um, but basically, so wait yeah, for what? For the same for the same purpose. So spiders are very what? sensitive. Which purpose? <laughs> the spiders. But let's let's okay. let's delve in. So okay. spiders are very sensitive to vibrations through their gorgeous, amazing little le- legs. Still love spiders. Um, <laughs> Because when their prey gets stuck in the web, they cause vibrations as they're trying to struggle to, you know, to get free. Um, however, spiders are particular with this sensing in that they only respond to vibrations within certain ranges of amplitude and frequency, matching that of prey thrashing about in a web. So if you want to trick a spider um, that there's some prey in its web and that should come out and feast, um, you've got to produce particular vibrations. So traditionally, um, people used to use a tuning fork. Uh, to do this kind of research, literally just to get a spider to come out so they could look at it, study it, what have you. Um, But annoyingly, you have to continuously strike it, you know, to get it to vibrate and then use it. Um, But it turns out that, you know, for more modern research, electric toothbrushes and vibrators work just as well. Um, And I will say, uh, though the review uh, from zoologist Dr. Alistair Gibbons notes a special advantage of vibrators, which is that multiple speed settings are fantastic for the diversity of web builders and to stimulate, oh, I mean, simulate uh, different <laughs> prey species. So, all right, question eight. Oh, we, we made it this far. Oh, boy. <sighs> question eight. What container, which normally holds a hyperbolic paraboloidal snack is also a cost-effective storage option for tree cores. Pringles. Yes, exactly. So yeah, Pringles are famously hyperbolic paraboloids or saddle-shaped. It's like another mathematic term for it. Um, And they're specifically designed as such to keep them steadily in place in their packaging and also strengthen them against being crushed when stacked on top of each other. And I'm not sure if this is like, I think it's apocryphal, but like supposedly like a bunch of computer modeling, like with supercomputers apparently. meant, apparently, there we go, went into <laughs> designing Pringles because there was a problem with them just like arriving at grocery stores broken. Um, mm. It was that and also finding like the perfect recipe that would still make them tasty and durable, though I still think they win more on the durable, the durability than the tastiness, but. You know, I think we, we covered here in maybe like one of the first five episodes, they are 40% potato by mass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. Um, but yeah, so uh, forest ecologist Dr. Marcus Eichhorn recommended Pringle cans in quotes, um, once the salty deposits have inside have been discarded, very critical, um, as containers for tree cores, which scientists collect to study past climate conditions. Um, but yeah, so as we know, tree rings carry information about the weather during the seasons they were deposited. Um, and also I learned in looking into this, the study of tree rings is called dendrochronology, which is hmm. just cool. And also I would argue a cool band that's name. Branch. Yeah, oh. That's right? yeah. It's like a whole genre. The dendrochronologists. Ooh, <laughs> I like it. Um, and oh, also, as a last share, and I'd highly like of all of these Amazon reviews would look up this one in particular because on that same Twitter thread, um, the shorter Pringles cans were also recommended for weighing starling nestlings, sawwet owls, and water voles. And it's just a thread of like <laughs> tiny animals like peeking out of Pringles cans <laughs> on scales. And it just, it made all the research for this That's quiz really good. extremely worth it. It was great. So that was the quiz. You guys nailed it, unsurprisingly. Very nicely done. 
All right, so thanks for listening. Uh, if you'd like to check out more content from us, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Uh, we're also individually on social media. Um, I'm at underscore EM Costa. Rob? At SweaterVest SCI. Noah? At Arcs and Sciences. And our lovely guest, Marianne Renault. You can find her at Marianne Renault. It is a very <laughs> coveted handle, and it is all mine. I tried to get it, but I had yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Marianne, for being on the oh, show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no. Yes, it's really fun. Yes, absolutely. It's um, well time. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyberson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyberson. The theme music is by AC Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Bye! Bye! Bye.